0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Revelation. We are now in Chapter 2. We are doing, for those of you maybe you're here for the first time today, we believe we need to study the whole counsel of God. Those are Paul's words. He was committed to teaching the whole counsel of God. He preached the whole counsel of God. And so we are committed to studying and reading the whole counsel of God as well. That means the whole Bible. And in particular, we emphasize the New Testament because Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. He came to fulfill everything. So the New Testament emphasizing the ministry of Jesus and how he fulfilled all of Old Testament prophecy. And the New Testament really is a record of what is called the New Covenant. And so that's why we emphasize the New Testament, preaching through entire books pretty much one paragraph at a time. We have the privilege now to study together the book of Revelation. We just finished a in-depth study of the Gospel of John, and now we're going to stick with the same author, but a very different time period and a different perspective of Jesus that John the Apostle wants to communicate to us. So we've looked at the introduction, Revelation chapter 1. Thank you, man. And we looked at the first 20 verses, which was introduction. By the way... So this is our third week, well, not counting the intro, uh, introduction, this is our, yeah, this will be our fourth week in the book of Revelation, and just so you know, I have been very encouraged by feedback from our people, you here in this church, because I've had several Christians either email me, believers in the church, email me or talk to me personally, saying that they are reading the book of Revelation maybe for the first time in their Christian life, and boy, that, that's very exciting to me, I think that's awesome, because that was one of my goals. And some are reading it for the first time, maybe in a while, or they're looking forward to studying it comprehensively and systematically in a way they never have before, and they're thrilled about that. And so that was very good to hear, because that was my goal, and by way of reminder, we addressed this already, God gives you a promise for studying the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads this prophecy. Blessed are you if you read this book, the whole book. Blessed is the one who reads it, those who hear, that means you understand it, you try to comprehend it, after you hear it and comprehend it, then practically you have to implement it and do it, obey it, and there's a blessing for those who obey as well, for those who read, for those who hear, and then finally those who do what is written in it, which again is a good reminder that the book of Revelation is a practical book, unlike a lot of people say, oh, it's all esoteric and there's nothing relevant or practical or pertinent, in it, nothing could be further from the truth. Revelation is one of the most practical books in the entire New Testament, and I am convinced of that. We're going to see that as we go through. So it's a tremendous blessing, and it's a wonderful privilege and honor to look at this fantastic book, Revelation. And we're going to start in chapter 2, picking up where we laughed off. John the Apostle is at the end of his life when he's writing this book, the book of Revelation. He spent... Almost 40 years as a pastor in Ephesus and in surrounding churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was the key city in Asia Minor. It was the key city among all the cities there. And it was also a key city in terms of the most prominent church was there in Ephesus in Asia Minor there in Turkey. And the Apostle John was probably a pastor for a good three decades plus in the church of Ephesus. Amazing. Tremendously Privileged church. But while he was there, the church of Jesus Christ was undergoing all kinds of persecution coming from the Roman government, coming particularly from Domitian, the evil ruler of the day. He was having Christians persecuted, arrested, beaten, jailed, and even murdered. And we're going to see that in one of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 under this persecution John got caught in the middle of it as a pastor of a prominent church in Ephesus. And as a result, he was arrested, thrown in prison, actually taken off to this obscure island out in the middle of nowhere in the the ocean, which was a penal colony for criminals, hardened criminals. And John the Apostle was confined there, and his crime was preaching Jesus, being a Christian. That was his crime. And while he's in confinement on the island of Patmos where he was imprisoned the Lord Jesus Christ in glory appeared to John the apostle whether in the body or in a vision we don't know but literally appeared to John John was an old man it was in the 90s it was 50 years after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and now Jesus makes this glorious personal appearance to John the old man who's persecuted on this island and gives him this revelation. To give to his church all the churches of that day and all the churches throughout history. To remind Christians of how the story ends. Good news, victoriously. It's good news. Revelation is an exciting book. So this had to be incredibly encouraging for John the old persecuted. Some would think forgotten Christian. The only apostle left that wasn't killed. By the way, John was probably the pastor at the church of Ephesus at this time and was arrested and taken off as the pastor. So the church at Ephesus where John pastored, they were without their pastor. Where's your pastor? Oh, he got arrested. He's in prison. What's he there for? For preaching Jesus and teaching us the Bible. So that's the context is John is now writing revelation that Jesus Christ gave him and he's having this information sent back to his very home church where he's the pastor and surrounding churches that he was very familiar with in related areas. So that's the context and the background. And God gives us a divine outline of the book of Revelation. I I did talk to someone this week, and they said they're reading uh, the book of Revelation for the first time in their Christian life, starting at chapter 1 and going through. And I said, how's it going? Very confusing. Very hard to understand. But I'm going to keep plugging away. Okay, well, hang in there. That's why we're studying it. But maybe to alleviate some of the confusion, at least we should know how to divide the book that really helps us get a perspective big picture about the book is divided it's very logically laid out divine outline given in revelation chapter 1 verse 19 here's the outline jesus told john what to write write therefore the things which you have seen that refers to everything that just happened in chapter 1 his vision that's point number 1 in the outline and he did the things which are or the things which you have seen Point number two, write down the things which are present tense going on right now. And that's the church age, things going on in the churches, the church at Ephesus where you're the pastor and the other six churches that you know of in Asia Minor. Write all that stuff down, present tense. That is in chapters 2 and 3, present tense, ongoing stuff regarding the churches. And also, uh, it really pertains to the entire church age. And we're going to see that and why that is true. And then finally, the point three in the outline, things which you have seen, That happened in the vision of Christ. The things which are regarding the seven churches and the things that are yet to come. The things that are yet future. Write those down as well, John, and those will be revealed to you. That's the end of verse 19. The things which shall take place. We said that was a technical, prophetic phrase taken from Daniel chapter 2 used three times taken from Jesus in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the end times. That is a technical phrase. The things which shall take place. Place that refers to the future, the end times, the Antichrist, the tribulation. This is all future, the end of the world, just prior to Christ's coming. And really that picks up in John chapter I mean in Revelation chapter four, verse one and following and goes all the way to Revelation chapter twenty two, verse six. So that's your outline. Everything from Revelation four verse one all the way to chapter twenty two is future. It hasn't happened yet, and it is not happening right now. If you want to know what's going on right now, read Revelation two through three. That's where people get very confused. So let's go ahead and look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 2 and 3, John, or Jesus, is going to address seven churches in Asia Minor that existed in John's day. John probably was very familiar with every one of these churches. He probably visited every one of these churches. Maybe he even helped plant some of these churches in Asia Minor. So these seven churches were chosen. There were many more churches in Asia Minor, but these seven are selected sovereignly In God's wisdom, for His purpose, to communicate the truth He wanted to know. could speculate all day why He chose these seven and only seven. I'm not going to speculate because it's not in the Bible. We'll just deal with what we've got. These are the ones God chose. But no doubt, Ephesus was chosen because that was John's home church and that's where he spent 35 years as a pastor. So that makes sense. It was the most prominent church in the area. So we're going to look at the messages of Jesus Christ to these seven churches. And by the way, every one of the messages that Jesus gave to these churches that were historical churches that really existed, there are lessons for us. Every one of these churches has lessons from Jesus that apply directly to our church and to our life. That's why I say that Revelation is one of the most practical, relevant, pertinent books in the entire New Testament for us as a church. As a matter of fact, the first service we ever had at GBF when we planted the church three and a half years ago, the first sermon I ever gave was right here, Revelation chapter 2. Because it's Jesus talking to the church. What a church should be and what a church should not be. How much more relevant can you possibly get Than that. If your Bible is like my Bible, you'll notice that in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, virtually all the letters are read. That means Jesus is talking. Jesus, the Lord and head of the church. The one that holds the church in his right hand. He has all power and authority over the church. He created the church, he purchased it with his own blood. It is his precious bride. He built the church. He's growing the church. He nurtures and protects the church. He also chastens and disciplines and purifies his church. It's his church. So if anybody has the right to stand up and go like this with their finger to the church, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anybody has the authority to commend the church for their obedience, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His church. So we're going to hear from Him. So take it to heart. And let's look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to deal with the first church, the church of Ephesus, verses 1-3. through And so this morning I called the sermon, The Church at Ephesus, Doctrinally Smug. They had their doctrine right. Good teaching, good theology. The problem was they knew they had good teaching and good theology, and they got proud about it, and they got smug, a little arrogant, a little theologically cold, and we're going to see that, but there's practical lessons there. So let's go ahead and look at it. I divided it up into four themes that I want us to consider. The First, let me read Ephesians chapter or Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, to the messenger... The word that some of your translations say angel. It's actually messenger. This is a human messenger. It is the exact same word used in Matthew 11, referring to John the Baptist, Baptist who was an angelos, a messenger of God, a human messenger. It's not angel. It can mean angel. Context determines the meaning. So to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So said Jesus to John, to the messenger, to the church at Ephesus, to us today. And every Christian and every church. So let's go ahead and look at the church at Ephesus at that time. Just some background information before we jump into the pertinent points of spiritual truths regarding the church at Ephesus, the city itself. City of Ephesus, like I said, it's in modern day Turkey over there. It's close to the ocean, so it used to be a harbor. Now it's six miles away from the ocean. But the gospel was introduced into the city in Ephesus first by Aquila and uh, Priscilla in about 52 A.D., and that's in Acts 18. So that's, as far as we know, the first exposure to the gospel in Ephesus. And then about uh, not long after that, there was a godly man that uh, God sent in there, and his name was Apollos, and he was mighty in the Scriptures, and he also came and ministered in the city of Ephesus. And then about a year later, the Apostle Paul, on uh, his third missionary journey, he'd been there on the second missionary journey briefly, but the third missionary journey, Paul came into the city of Ephesus, prominent city, Roman province. It was a free city. The governor of Rome in that area actually resided in Ephesus, even though Ephesus was not the capital of that area. So politically, it was very significant. Paul rolled in. It was an incredibly pagan and corrupt city, by the way. It was worse than Las Vegas, or think of the worst city you could possibly think of in terms of immorality here in America. Ephesus was worse in terms of immorality and false religion. Totally blatant, legalized, protected, all the immorality. So Paul rolls in there to this... Despicable, wretched city, as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't ask God to call fires down from heaven to destroy it. Paul's got a heart for lost people, and he wants to preach to see people saved. He wants to see the city redeemed. And God honored that because Paul ended up staying for three years in the city of Ephesus. Three years. Paul was a church planter, We're going all over the place. Preaching the gospel, and then he'd get the disciples together, he'd train them, and then he'd plant a church. And then it was uh, self-sustaining that he'd leave and go to the next city. Paul must have planted, we could count, maybe 10-plus churches during his ministry, probably more than that, because it's not all recorded. But, so Ephesus was a church plant by the Apostle Paul himself. And the Apostle Paul got that church started with the disciples. He stayed there for at least three years. That is longer than Paul stayed at any church that we know of. Three years. Corinth, a year and a half. Ephesus, three years. Can you imagine having the Apostle Paul as your pastor for three years? Unbelievable. You talk about unbelievable, amazing, unprecedented privilege. The Apostle Paul planted that church. Then later, Timothy came and ministered there as an acting pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer of the church. We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then two of the associates of the Apostle Paul were also left there in place to pastor, to minister, to elder. And then when Paul dies... John the Apostle, the best friend of Jesus, comes rolling into town and then he takes up residency in Ephesus and he becomes the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Not for three years, for three decades. Can you imagine having John the Apostle as your pastor for 35, 40 years? Amazing. The point is that the church of Ephesus had unrivaled privilege, spiritually speaking. Paul was their pastor. Timothy was their pastor. John was their pastor for almost 40 years. Not only that, they were privileged with amazing men of God for long periods of time. They were privileged with more New Testament scripture than any church in existence known in the New Testament. They were recipients of at least eight New Testament books, including the Book of Ephesus, First and Second Timothy, First, Second, and Third John, Revelation, the Gospel of John. Not only that, Paul wrote the book of Corinthians while at the church at Ephesus. Nine New Testament books immediately at their disposal. Now, you've got nine books written to you from the New Testament. You've got two apostles that served as your pastor for almost 45 years. Then it's no wonder that this church was considered doctrinally sound. They had their theology down. And that's what they're going to be commended for. So let's go ahead and look at uh, the four points here. Point number one I want to highlight is the destination, the church in Ephesus, (coughs) We've introduced that a little bit here. So this was the church, a prominent city. By the way, this city was prominent not just uh, religiously, politically, but also economically. It was right on the coast, and at the time you could actually access the city of Ephesus as a port from the sea and also as accessible from land. So it was a key city, duly accessible. That's why it thrived so much, and it was also known for its... Religion. It was a religious headquarters. They had the temple of Artemis or Diana there. And that was actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, was the temple of Artemis or Diana. And, and you think of Diana. That's a beautiful, lovely name, isn't it? Diana? You should do a Google and look up a picture of Diana. Her name was Artemis, by the way. That should tell you something. That was also her name, Artemis. And the, the statue of Diana was just this big, grotesque, black, Statue, thing, monster looking, sensually created thing, rock that fell out of heaven. There is nothing visually appealing about it whatsoever, I guarantee it. That was Diana. They had her statue and they used to make her statue and sell it and they'd buy it and you pray to the statue and you worship the statue. And by the way, her temple, which is still remnants of it, Today, and it was an ancient wonder of the world. It was a huge mammoth thing. And inside of that temple, it was basically uh, sexual religious prostitution was going on full time, 24-7. Not only that, it was a place where criminals, vicious, wicked, evil criminals, were being harbored. It was a safe haven for criminals. That's what it predominantly existed for. That just tells you how corrupt the religion is. Everywhere there is false religion, there's a perversion of sexuality. Always. And this was a prime example here in the city of Ephesus. So that was the church of Ephesus. An incredible challenge because of the immorality that existed in the society there. And at the same time, great privilege for the church because of what God had given them there. And the book of Ephesians reminds us The Apostle Paul, he planted that church. He served three years there. And then then he left and continued to do ministry and plant other churches. So he kept in contact with his dear, beloved church. And that's why he wrote the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, when this church church was new, it was fresh. New believers. Zealous. Excited about Christ. Remembering what God had saved them from. The paganism. The immorality. The enslavery to sin. And they had great joy in their heart. Living for Christ, uncompromised. And you can read that in Acts chapter 19. These new believers, totally sold out for Jesus Christ. Unabashed. And one of the things that God commended these new believers for at the church of Ephesus was their love. Uncompromised. Full love. Love for God, for Christ, for the church, for believers, and love for the lost world. That was the mark of the church of Ephesus when they began. Ephesians chapter 1, 15. Listen. Listen. For this reason, I too, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love, your love for all the saints, I give thanks to God ceaselessly for you. So when the church just started, that was the mark. That was it. How would you define the church at Ephesus? They were a church of faith and a love. A love for Christ and a love for people. Now go to the future, 40 years later, the church has been transformed some ways, in a not, a, not a good way. We're going to get to that in a second. But point number one, the destination of the church of Ephesus, originally known as the church of love. That's this church. Point number two. Let's look at it. That is the commendation. The commendation. Jesus is going to commend this church. He's going to acknowledge the things they do well and good. Because they did do some things well and good even 40 years later. What do they do well? Let's look at second part of verse 1 and up to verse 3. Jesus says, uh, the one who holds the seven stars in His right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that's Jesus talking about Himself. He has authority over the church. He has the authority to make a diagnosis about the church, its true character, and He does, verse 2, I know your deeds. Jesus is omniscient. I know. I know your deeds. So these are the good things that they do or that they were doing when John wrote, I know your deeds and, that your, and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you haven't grown weary. These are all good things, commendable things. And another one in verse 6. And you also have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That was a good thing. So there's really four things they were blessed and commended for, and I wanted to zero in on those because we need to do those things well, where he blessed them, because they were doing them well. He was, he was commending them for them. By, and then he's going to, after he commends them for what they were doing well, he's going to rebuke them for the bad things they were doing. And he does this all throughout, with all seven churches. Five churches had things that they were doing bad. But before Jesus gets to the bad things they were doing, and this is very practical for us, if you're a parent, listen, or a school teacher, or just a Christian in general, this is a great principle to follow Jesus' model, before He rebukes anybody for their sin, some of it was pretty bad, if they had anything at all to be commended, He commended them first. So you accentuate the positive first. Very effective tool. It's the way to be Christ-like. If you've got to rebuke somebody, or chastise somebody, or admonish somebody, or your children, or a student, or whatever it is. Accentuate the positive first. Commend them for what they do well. Because they're not incarnate evil. They don't do everything bad. It's just not fair. That's not a fair assessment. So Jesus is gracious. He is objective. He is balanced. So before the rebuke is this beautiful commendation. Man, you guys are doing great. Continue to do it. You're model and exemplary in these areas. God will bless you for that obedience. Very important principle. Marriage. That needs to happen in marriage. You have something you have to admonish a spouse for. Find at least one thing somewhere in their life. Look under a rock if you have to. Of the good things they do. And tell them, honey, you do this well. Every once in a while. But I have this against you. See if it helps your marriage. Anyway, let's look at these four things. So what was the church at Ephesus committed for 40 years later after being a church of love? By the way, when you are going, when you are over 40 years old as a church, that means that the second generation has kicked in. Imagine GBF now 40 years older. Pastor Cliff, he's in heaven going, yippee! <laughs> Some new pastor, a whole bunch of other people have taken over. The children and the grandchildren are now here, here milling around. They don't have a clue of how this church started or what was going on or the things that God brought us through or the miracles He did. There's no recollection. There's no memory. So you got a whole new generation. And if the baton wasn't handed off properly, and that person wasn't set in the right direction to run, inevitably, by human nature, they run off course every single time. We see that in most of the universities in this country and all over the world that were started as Christian universities, Christian colleges, and got off track the next generation down, and even worse, the next generation down. The baton was dropped. They got off track. They become just abs- absolutely, abjectly corrupt anti-Christian. That's the challenge of a church. Any church that has any years of length faces the risk of becoming institutionalized and losing focus, losing priorities. But before we get to that, here are the four things they did well. It says, I know your deeds and, and I know your toil. Copious is the Greek word. That's where we get the word copious. Copious, Hard. All-out, consistent work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. This is an incredibly high work ethic. Toil. That's what this church at Ephesus has been doing for 40 years. Man, they were just a hard-working church. They were not an apathetic church. They were not a lazy church. There's a couple churches here where he talks to They're lazy. The church at Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. Wake up, man. You're half asleep. Lazy. At least they weren't like that church, Sardis or Laodicea, lazy, apathetic. This is a hard-working church. So God commends them for that. They were fulfilling Ephesians 4.11 where the saints were doing the work of the ministry. The saints at Ephesus, they weren't spectators. They didn't want to come to church to be entertained. Man, they were hands-on, sleeves rolled up, front lines, doing the work of the ministry, their nose to the grindstone, their hand to the plow for 40 years. That That is amazing. And this was legitimate ministry they were doing. That is commanded. Churches need to be hardworking as unto the Lord. Right? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, and also First 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. One thing that does mean is that means work hard for Jesus. Don't be lazy. Don't be a slugger. Don't be negligent or apathetic. It doesn't honor God. This is a hard working church, beyond compare. What else? They persevered. That's long term. Not only did they some people can work hard for a short period of time. It's like when I take most of my family on an occasional painting job, especially when I was doing that full time, that's hard work. You're scraping paint off and all that tedious stuff, copious work. I got my family as my work crew, and they'd last about twenty five minutes. Can we take a break? Can we get paid now? Long term. Working hard. So not only did they work hard, they persevered. That is the long term. They, in other words, they finished what they started. That was their goal. Many times people start something they start it enthusiastically, and they're not committed to finishing what they start. Finish what you start. You do that, you're going to be rare. And persevering also implies, while well, they're moving along and they're going to finish and work hard to get to the end and get to the goal. They are enduring trials, suffering, persecution. Perseverance implies two kinds of hardships. One is just the hardships of life, the vicissitudes of life. I'm not talking about persecution. Life is hard. Can I get an Amen? Well, it is for me. But anyway, uh, There's trials that come your way. You, the unexpected trials. Something that happens at work, something that happened in the neighborhood. Uh, a tree falls on your house. At least in the street that I was driving up to church this morning. Hardships in life. You're you're low on money. But you don't give up. You keep trusting God. One more step. Faith in Him. That's perseverance. Then there's also perseverance because you're enduring persecution and hardship for being Christ-like and holy from a hateful world, from Satan himself. And you don't give up, you persevere. That was admirable for the Ephesians. So hard work, persevering. Uh, Third thing they were commended for is that they were a discerning church, spiritually discerning. They could spot sin pinpoint it, identify it, and call it what it is. That is sinful. That is unbiblical. All kinds of churches we got that are not discerning spiritually speaking. Everybody's good. I just want warm fuzzies. Everybody's okay. Do whatever you want. American Christianity, no. Not Ephesus. They know that wasn't true. They've been trained too well to be spiritually discerning. And when you think of it, the Apostle Paul and John, one of the sons of thunder... Yeah, they they had a high standard of spiritual, theological, doctrinal discernment. Amazing. Spiritually discerning, that is a good thing. They fulfilled Scripture. Examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and have nothing to do with evil. They obeyed. They did that. And that's why over the course of 40 years, they persevered in their spiritual discernment. And this day, 40 years later, they were still spiritually discerning and theologically astute. Now, there are some churches that are discerning or they realize, oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's sinful behavior. Oh, that's a compromise. Oh, they shouldn't do that. Yeah, that Christian shouldn't do that. Oh, that member shouldn't do that. Oh, that teaching is wrong. That's messed up. And there are some churches that can do that, and yet they don't have the courage to follow up and confront that sin, that compromise, that heresy. Well, that's not true of Ephesus, because the fourth thing they're commended for is not only being discerning, but following up with their discernment, because that's the middle of verse two. they cannot endure evil men. That means they're discerning. And furthermore, you put to the test. There it is. You know what that is? That's church discipline. Being discerning and then acting on discernment. When necessary, and that is called church discipline. Taking a strong, courageous stand. Oh, this is woefully missing in many churches. I know it is. You've got to be courageous to do this. Not just be discerning, but follow through with church discipline. And so that's what they did. It says, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, but they are not. You found them to be false. They did something about it. This is great. because Not only did they do church discipline, if they heard false teaching, they would confront it. They'd confront it in a biblical manner. If it... Uh, needed to be gotten rid of. They would get rid of it totally from the church, remove it from the church. This is also what a shepherd's supposed to do because it's supposed to protect his sheep from the wolves. This is what shepherds are supposed to do, to be courageous, protect your sheep, not just physically, but theologically. The truth of God cannot be compromised. The Gospel cannot be watered down. Very, very important. Verse 6 says the same thing. Uh, The church at Ephesus, you also did this, and I appreciate it, It says Jesus. Jesus said, you hate? Yeah, I said hate because Jesus said hate. Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus for hating something. What is that? The deeds of the Nicolaitans. What is it? Uh, The deeds of the Nicolaitans, as best we can know, was false teaching that led to compromise and immorality. False teaching that led to compromised immoral living. That's how immoral living always happens. It's a result of false teaching. What should our attitude be towards false teaching in the church? It should be one of hatred. I didn't make that word up. Jesus did. It's right there. Revelation 2.6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, which I also hate. Thank you for protecting my church at Ephesus from false teaching. So those are the four things. So that's what we need to be committed to doing. We need to be a hard-working church, laboring continuously under the Lord and for His glory, not for ourselves. We need to be persevering and enduring in the midst of trials in life and trials from unbelievers and Satan himself and finish what we started with our eye on the prize, ultimately Jesus Christ Himself. We also need to be a discerning church, searching the Scriptures, submitting to the Word of God, no matter what it says or who says it. It is the authority. It is God's very Word. Being discerning, and not only that, have some courage and keep this church pure and protected. And practice church discipline, among other things. We need to be like Ephesus, but we also need to avoid the pitfalls and the compromises of Ephesus. And what was that? Well, that's number three, the deviation. They deviated. Oops, they got off track. Oops. What was it? They deviated from the main thing they were commended for in Ephesians 1, 40 years earlier. You are a loving church. That is awesome. They left that behind. Um, so that's point number three the deviation. Truth without love. It was God Himself and Paul who told the church at Ephesus, Speak the truth with love. Now they were 40 years later, they're just speaking the truth. I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I don't care who I offend. I don't care whose toes I step on. I don't care who I make cry. I don't care how insensitive I am. Man, I've seen pastors like that. Confession. I can think of times where I was like that. So this is a rebuke to me as well. They were doing... Wrong, Jesus says in verse four and five. But I have this against you, man. That is a scary phrase. Jesus talking to the church and Christians. I have this against you. What is it? It's really one thing that you have left your first love. The Greek text. Here's the literal reading in the Greek text, which makes it emphatic in terms of the way it's worded. I have this against you. Your first love, you have left. Your first, lo- your main priority that you had at first you have abandoned what was that that was love that was the great commandment that was matthew 22 when somebody asked jesus jesus what is the greatest commandment the greatest priority in life and jesus said it is this to love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and also to love your neighbor as yourself love fulfills the law there is no higher command you want to be a godly church a Spirit-filled church, a blessed church. You need to be a church and a Christian committed to the love of God. And the church at Ephesus, they they forgot this. Maybe it was the second generation of people who began to compromise in this regard. I don't know. But that was the big compromise. So the big sin, and it is a big sin. It's the biggest sin. They were now not having... Love for God and Jesus as they should. By the way, love for God and Jesus is the greatest priority because everything we do should flow out of a love and a devotion to our God and Jesus Christ who saved us. That is the motive for everything. And that's what they left behind. And a love for people as a result. And not just love for your holy huddle and your club at the church. It is love for the lost like Jesus had. That's why He came into the world. God so loved the world. He loved the pathetic, sinful, rebellious world. That's why He came into the world. His love for sinners. Church at Ephesus, they forgot this. You've left your first love. You've abandoned the greatest Christian motive and principle. The greatest virtue, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Love. There is no greater virtue. You're compromising on love. Well, but I'm orthodox and theologically sound. Yeah, and you're also pompous and arrogant and dishonoring the Lord, if that's the case. So God doesn't just want this cold, hollow orthodoxy. They worked, right? So God had their hands. They were discerning. So God had their head. Yet they compromised on devotion. God didn't, they didn't, have, God's, or they didn't, God didn't have their heart. Jesus Christ wants more than our hands and our head. He also wants our heart. They have to go together. Otherwise, you become a legalist or judgmental or hypercritical. This is the problem with Christians who are hypercritical. They've got an unbalance. They lack a heart of love. We all struggle with that, but there are some Christians who really struggle with that. Well, what's the remedy? Well, Jesus tells us, here's the remedy. If you want to overcome that sin, if you want to have revival in your church, you've got to do do two things. Remember and repent. Remember and repent. Remembering is so important. That's what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Man, you used to be up here in love, and now you've fallen down here. You're in the pit on love. Remember how you used to be loving back in Ephesians chapter 1 40 years ago? Remember. That gives you perspective. That's why that passage that Sam read this morning was so fantastic, because God was calling Israel to remember You're cold. You're callous. Remember the way it used to be. The way you used to be. That gives you perspective when you remember. That's what we need to do as a church. Continually remember and not forget. One of the greatest remembering passages is in Titus chapter 3 where God is talking about and Paul is talking about how God is is a great Savior and He saves people. And before he gets to that truth, he says, you know what, Christian? Don't malign anybody. Don't badmouth anybody. I don't care how horrible of a sinner they are. Why, Paul? And he said, remember. Remember what you used to be like. And you, because every one of us, before we got saved, we were just as pathetic and miserable. Remember that? If you can remember that and keep perspective and thank God that He saved you and have the attitude of Paul, and Paul considered himself the worst sinner of all time in the history of the universe and was overflowing with a heart of thanks and overflowing with a heart of grace towards other people and other sinners. Because Paul remembered what he used to be like. We need to do the same thing. Titus chapter 3, remember where from you have fallen. So if you're a Christian with a critical, judgmental spirit towards other people all the time, you have forgotten. You have forgotten what you have been saved from. And I guarantee as this church gets older here at GBF, year after year after year after year, we'll probably start hearing things and I'm thinking, man, they need to remember. They have forgotten. I'm serious. They have forgotten what it used to be like. You have forgotten the great things God has done. You have forgotten all the times of prayer and we didn't know what the next step was. where, What building we were going to meet in. Who was going to show up? We've got to remember how gracious God has been. How miserable we were. That's a great strategy to remember. That's good parenting.